Good morning. Please turn to James 4 in your Bible or in the bulletin. And in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 1012. <coughs> Our current sermon series is on the letter of James, and it's called Spiritual Living. And the more time I spend in this letter, the more I think of James as a a practical philosopher. He's got this way of looking at the world. He sees analogies in many things. I can imagine him strolling around the city or maybe taking a walk down the coastline and He looks at the ships in the distance and he thinks, hmm, the whole ship is controlled by such a small rudder. It's kind of like how important our tongue is and and how important what we say is to our lives. Uh, Mark preached on that particular passage weeks ago. James also has scripture on his mind as he writes. It's crucial to understand that he often refers to the moral law of God that was revealed to God's people, Israel. In particular, the Ten Commandments seem to be in view, especially in our passage this morning. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. It's a somewhat heavy passage. Um, we need the Lord's grace. Um, Let's read verses 1 through 12 in chapter 4 of James. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother, or judges his brother, speaks evil against the law, and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's ask God to give us grace and understanding this morning. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed yourself to us, and we are grateful that we are able to know you. And we ask, be with us in this time. Be with me as I preach. Be with all of us as we hear what you have to say. Help us to take it in um, in humility and with reliance on you. In Jesus' name. 
Zero or one. Off or on. To be or not to be. Yes or no. Unity or disorder. God or the world. Not everything in life is a binary choice. But some things are mutually exclusive. You can't choose one without forsaking the other. But even so, we experience the chaos of competing desires. It comes out in the way we talk. We speak of knowing and feeling like there's some kind of divide between our head and our heart. Or we try to describe it as some kind of mismatch between our physical body and our heart, or our physical body and our brain. Remember that Christina Aguilera song, Genie in a Bottle? She said, my body's saying let's go, but my heart is saying no. So, the confusion, the chaos. You can think of situations this past week, or even this morning where you knew what you should do, but you didn't do it. Or you knew what you shouldn't do, and you did it anyway. Whether you're a Christian or not, we are conflicted people. And we certainly conflict with others. But the main concern is, where does this condition leave us in relation to God? These verses give us symptoms and a diagnosis that our desires naturally oppose God and His commands and put us at enmity with Him and with His family. That is, if not for grace. We'll learn from this passage that if we're humble before God, His grace allows us to draw near to Him and live peaceably within His family. We're going to ponder this passage in two ways. First, the world inside. And then, grace against pride. So first, the world inside. James tells his hearers that the reason for conflict is their competing passions. Verses 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And this pertains to us as well. If you think clearly and honestly about fights that you've had, if we're really honest, most of them boil down to our wanting something that someone else has whether it's tangible or not. Or maybe it's just the basic thought that I'm better. I deserve better. Greed, envy, and pride leading to fights. We can, we can see that. But why would he say murder? Well, we don't get to dismiss this as long as we haven't personally put anyone in the ground. It still pertains to us. James might have Jesus' words in mind when he said that being angry with a brother would be worthy of the same judgment as murder. Or maybe he's just pointing out the progression of coveting. To covet is to wish that someone else's fortune were yours. And if that coveting grows, it may even get to the point where you wish the other person were out of the way altogether. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Well, next, James moves away from focusing on our fights with others, and he talks about how our passions relate to the way we talk to God in prayer, or maybe the way we don't. He says we either ignore God or we try to use Him. 
Look at the end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. I don't know about you, but there might not be a better description of my prayer habits than either non-existent or ill-motivated. See, we ought to trust God in prayer for our needs, but there is a right way to pray. There's a right way to ask. To ask wrongly is to try to get God on the side of your passion, to get Him on the side of your pleasures, your selfish desires. James says that all of that amounts to betraying God. Actually, it amounts to cheating on Him. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What he really wrote, his words in his original letter are, you adulteresses. In the Bible, God has likened his people to a wife. And, and when they strayed from him, he regarded it as adultery. James says this behavior and these desires, they align with the world. What's the world? Well, in the Bible, the world is everything that opposes God, everything that's born of rebellion against Him, living according to your passions, your selfish pleasures. That's worldliness. It's one or the other. You can't be a friend of the world without being an enemy of God. And that word friend, we use the word friend for all kinds of relationships, don't we? From casual acquaintances to our best friendships. But, but here, friend means, it has, some, it has a different meaning. It, it means to have loyalty, to value the same things as the world. It means to chase and clamor after the same things that the world wants. But we can't use God to satisfy our worldly desires. Back in chapter 1, James told us, he told his readers, that God is the source of every good and perfect gift. We sang about that in the song Greatest End. May seek my greatest pleasure from your hand. God's not a source of evil things. And least of all, things and systems that oppose him. He's not going to give those to us. James has written earlier in his letter about how God is constant. He doesn't vary. He doesn't turn. He is perfect and unified. And this is the same thing that he wants from us, his people. Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? There's a lot of different ways you can interpret that because uh, they, they come down to the order of James's original words. We're not going to go into all those. What we can say is that God demands from his people our undivided selves. See, another scripture that James alludes to is a declaration about God from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. And it ties these concepts of God's unity and his demand for the full love of his people together. Listen to this. Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. See, God is not the source of disordered desires. He's not going to be our source for having those desires fulfilled. To try to use Him in that way is to commit adultery. This is heavy, isn't it? It's, it seems like a lot. It's, it's, James is, is throwing the book at his, at his readers. But, he tells us God is the source of abundant grace. His words have weighed heavily on the recipients of this letter. They weigh heavily on us if we really comprehend them. We've learned how the world is reflected inside us. Well, now we're going to ponder God's grace against pride. James tells his readers the way to rescue, the way to relief. And that way is through humility, submission, and repentance. Let's read verses 6 through 10. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You sinners, you double-minded, be wretched. James definitely could never be accused of being some kind of self-help guru. But the hope is peppered among these commands and among these statements. He gives more grace. Gives grace to the humble. God will draw near to you. He will exalt you. So I ask you, what's your disposition toward yourself? What's your attitude toward your sin? Do you see it not mainly as some kind of hindrance to your life, but as something committed against God. How do you regard God? Hearing all of this, all, all of these words, all of what James has written about the world's corruption in the human heart, how do you feel about your sin? You know, some of the toughest parts of Scripture are these parts where the commands touch upon our feelings. Humility. Mourn, weak, gloom. Feelings don't exactly feel like they're under our control. They're usually involuntary results of other things. It's sort of like singing. Many aspects of singing involve mechanisms we can't directly control. You've got your diaphragm. You've got your vocal folds. You've got all the different moving equipment in here. And so when you're teaching or learning to sing, you use exercises and you use imagery to affect those things indirectly. Well, a sure way to affect your feelings, to get at them indirectly, is to learn humility and to be, to be driven toward the mourning and gloom that are necessary parts of repentance. We have to consider God as He really is. 
consider the lawgiver and the judge who's able to save and to destroy, as James describes in verse 12. Consider that you don't live up to his demands. We don't obey his commands. Our love wavers. Some of you here are well acquainted with sadness. You're pensive about your sin. You're mindful of it. I want to encourage you, be sure that your repentance is facing towards God. Be grieved over sin because God is holy and because that sin would force you to remain His enemy if not for grace. Be sure to draw near to God. Don't run away. Don't shrink back. And then, be sure that you experience God's exaltation. To be lifted up is what comes after true repentance. We are brought back again and again to gratitude for the pardon that's made possible by Christ's sacrifice. The grace of God exalts us when we humble ourselves. And others of us here, we need to beware for a different reason. If there's only levity and laughter in your spiritual life, if you're never sobered by your sin, if I'm never sad, if I'm never grieved over my offenses before God, then perhaps I don't think of God accurately. Maybe I don't see myself accurately. There should be joy and mourning in our spiritual living. There's a song about Jesus' death called The Look, and it captures this perfectly. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I kill. Pleasing grief, mournful joy, both those things exist in our lives. In becoming human, God God drew near to us. The life destroyed by our sin was the perfect life of Christ, who never wavered in his love for God. He kept God's law. He had clean hands. He had a pure heart. He bore our sins in our place on the cross so that we could become righteous. You know, left to ourselves, we wouldn't be able to follow any of these commands. But when we trust God to give us His righteousness, once we're in Christ, He gives us power to live as His children, as His friends, as those who desire the same things that He does. So have you humbled yourself before God? Is your life characterized by your submission to Him. If so, that will affect how you treat others. You won't view yourself as being above them. Look at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. He's continuing his theme in chapter 3 about taming the tongue. We're not to speak evil of or judge one another. You know, people love to throw the phrase around, judge not, as if no one should hold them responsible or accountable for their sin or point it out. But that's not what James means. When James speaks of judging a brother, he, he doesn't mean calling out sin as sin. Because that's a necessary part of spiritual living. Rather, James is talking about slander. He's talking about looking down on one another. 
Once again, it has to do with pride in our own hearts. But what does he mean about judging the law? Well, when we examine ourselves in light of God's word, we're able to kind of step outside of ourselves, examine our true motives with the word of God. But we're never to step outside of our relationship to God and his commands as people who are called to obey them. We're not to judge which ones are worth obeying. If you speak evil of another, you are judging that God's command against that is not really worth obeying. You're putting yourself in the place of God when God is God alone. Look at verse 12. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? We have to fight to see God for who he is. And then we'll see ourselves in the right light. Who are we to look down on our neighbors? We have to fight for that humility and to submit to God. So we've seen that our desires naturally oppose God, His commands. And they make us, we, we, we oppose those commands and that makes us enemies of Him and His family. If we're humble before God, His grace allows us to draw near to Him and live peaceably within His family. And James has spoken of spiritual matters in practical ways here about how to live in faith and humility. I want to leave us with one last thought about living within God's family. Grace Presbyterian Church, let's ask ourselves, are we family enough to have fights? Are we living in close enough quarters? Are we in one another's lives? See, James is writing to local bodies of believers, and he's under the assumption that Christians in these churches are rubbing shoulders enough for it to cause some friction. Now, I'm not saying go out and pick a fight or delight in quarrels. Speaking for myself, though, there's, there's not many here with whom I can argue. I've fought with Kevin a few times, maybe Mark, maybe a few friends on the music team over the last nine years. These are brothers and sisters. These are people with whom we we share history. You might be here on Sundays, but are you part of this family? You know, grace dinners are coming up. You can host or attend a grace dinner. Hopefully it won't be a family fight around the dinner table. But I think you would be glad if you took part in one of those gatherings, a chance to be encouraged, to talk, to become more of a church family. But it doesn't have to be grace dinners. We simply ought to consider how close these people of God were to one another, that James would have to write this, that he would have to speak of fights among them. If Christ died to make that kinship possible, it's worth our effort. And there will be quarrels. But God will give us humility and more grace as well. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. Your word is life to us. 
And we ask that your spirit would give us life to follow your word. We ask that you'd make us grateful for, ever more grateful for Christ and for what his sacrifice has accomplished to redeem a people. And we ask that we would love one another, that we would not speak evil of one another or judge one another, that we would be people who obey your commands out of love for you and gratefulness. In Jesus' name.